0: and it's the first time in my career basically where there's been a uh a, a deal like this where we've been using just like the property next door as the comp you know i think there's been some deals that i've there's been some that i've bought where i've had i've had the comp you know but it was like within my portfolio and then i'm <laughs> doing a similar thing this was the first time where i was using somebody else's like exact comp because there was uh in 2013 in wicker park i had bought a 16 unit it was a like a failed condo deal. And then the same developer a, a year later, another one of his deals came out at eight unit, it's basically the same property. So I already knew all the rents and expenses. So I had a perfect comp for that uh, to use, but really this has like been, uh, been rare when that happens. I'm Drew Brenneman and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19 year old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. Welcome back to the Rise and Invest podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to do another deal story. You know, these kind of you you don't really get to pick when you're you know you, you find a good deal or when they they close necessarily. So we got a lot of deals closing. So we got a bunch of different deal stories to to go through. I guess uh, this is the third one coming out, and I have Evan Dillon back again. Good to be back,
1: Andrew. Thanks for having me.
0: Great, yeah, and I think you know so this deal that we closed this is another Phoenix deal, and it's been our biggest one yet. So we're we're super pumped about getting it across the finish line, and uh, happy to give you guys all all breakdown on it. So Evan, you want to
1: start us off? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, like you said, it was our largest deal to date in Phoenix. So it was exciting to make a, a bigger splash into the market. Um, you know, 96 units total. So, uh, um, you know, bringing up our total unit count in the Phoenix market up to 161 units total. So just representing a little bit, uh, half for the units for so the, the property, um, it's a 1973 vintage property. 96 units total, like I said, um, consisting of 16 one-bedroom apartments and then 80 uh, two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartments. Um, Nearly all of these units are in what we kind of call classic condition. So um, mostly, uh, I guess I'll say outdated fixtures or original fixtures that kind of came with the property or are not, you know, necessarily to the uh, scope. To you know the the um, kind of the the renter demand that's meeting the market. Um, so things like um, white appliances, tan cabinets, uh, mica countertops, old plumbing and electric fixtures. And you know one thing about uh, you know property such as this as well is that um, you know it, it does receive some renovations over the course of you know the years. I mean it's a 1973 vintage property, but um, you know with it being uh non institutional ownership things were kind of done piecemeal over the years so you'll go into one unit and <coughs> one you know unit will have nice vinyl flooring but then the the cabinets are original and then the bathroom's kind of a mess and you know there's still white white appliances so you you don't really notice that nice vinyl floor as much um so you know i think you know one thing new another thing kind of old you, you know it almost makes that thing kind of feel de- devalued. And, you know, we saw it as a big opportunity to add value to a property that hadn't seen, um, you know, I guess a, a lot of love over the years. And so much of real estate is just, you know, building something that's, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. And, you know, in doing, you know, a, a kind of a robust unit turn and value add project, you know, we can get a lot of good return on cost and, uh, create a lot of value. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I said, um, you know, this was a deal that we found. Um, seller was kind of a high net worth guy. Um, hadn't really pumped a lot of, uh, you know, new energy into the property. Hadn't really taken advantage of the, the market tailwinds that have occurred in Phoenix. Um, you know, since 2016, um, rents in this sub market have actually increased over 60%, um, if you can believe it or not. So, um, you know, we, we identified a lot of... Uh, supply that had been renovated and had been achieving um, high rents, which we can kind of uh, get into a little bit more um, uh, later in the podcast. But, you know, we, we identified it, um, had a lot of uh, opportunity for value. And, you know, I think, you know, in addition to the units, I'd say like the exterior was kind of in a little bit of rough shape. You know, there were some old stucco repairs that didn't match the color of the existing stucco. So you kind of saw it and just like, It it didn't look good from, you know, just the kind of an eye appeal. Um, but you know, in in addition to that, you know, uh, the, the wrought iron, um, and doors and everything just needed to really be repainted. Um, and, um, you know, it had amenities like pool, covered parking, clubhouse, laundry facility, expansive courtyards, and, um you know, one big thing that we noticed right away was that, like, there's this large clubhouse that wasn't being utilized. I guess, you know, what I'm just kind of getting at is that, you know, I think the property had good bones, so to speak, and that, um, you know, uh, you kind of drive in, and it's off. So much of Phoenix is, like, a law, like, uh, kind of a, a sprawl where you're your property is kind of like right off a of main thoroughfare and you're getting a lot of traffic. And one of the things that was nice about this property was that it was kind of off, uh, you know, the major roads. You're kind of on a, along a quiet road. And when you pull up to the front of the property, you're met with a tall gate. So it kind of feels safe. And then you have these long, expansive courtyards with a lot of trees and shade. And um, so, you know, I think that's all to say that uh, got good bones and I think we can add some value to it.
0: Um, yeah and for, you know first and foremost you know we're we're numbers people and it's interesting to hear you describe the property where it's like well what was nice about it in a way <laughs> you know and it's for for us we're trying to find value and you know uh, find opportunities and so to find a property that is in a really good location you know this is in Mesa Arizona and it's in it's in a, a great submarket where we can get into the growth and uh, how much new competition there is but where Really, like at every turn, there's something we can do to improve the, the value of the property and, and what the rental income. And these properties are they're just based on what they make in terms of the rents, you know after the expenses. And so real simply, yeah, you walk into a, a clubhouse or a leasing office, let's call it, and it's like a dreary place with like a brown desk in it, you know, and then the rest of the space isn't even being used behind it except for like storage or like broken stuff. Like, Hey, this is a great opportunity. This could be mm-hmm. a, uh, a party room or it could be a really nice clubhouse with a gym in it. And same thing, right? The units, they, they had kind of maintained what was there and then replaced things as they broke. But you know, a lot of this stuff felt like it was 30 years old inside mm-hmm. and the rents reflected that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and then one thing too, that's, you know, and I will jump into the rents, I'm sure much more in detail, but there's a, basically the exact same building next door which then made it real easy for us to go like hey we could take this building to that level or maybe even a little further and it was really you know easy to to kind of visualize what we could do
1: Mm -hmm. yeah exactly but it's in a great location as well um located in mesa which i guess was kind of traditionally thought of as one of the more affordable places in the valley um it is desirable because it's close to most of your major economic centers. So I can get to downtown Tempe, downtown Scottsdale, downtown Phoenix, pretty much all within uh, 20 minutes. Um, Our property was, it's located just directly north of US 60. So it's just kind of a quick hop onto the highway as well. Um, And then, you know, located just east of uh, Mesa's Fiesta District, which I guess is one of the you know the the premier kind of business districts within Mesa, um, you know, spanning eighteen thousand total employees. Um, a significant majority of that is actually health and education. Um, one being Banner Health, uh, they have a hospital there, employing over five thousand people, and then um, Mesa Community Community College, which has over twenty thousand students. So that's a you know nice robust, like robust base. To kind of start off with and you know people kind of talk about eds and meds as being kind of like a stable um you know stable sort of a sector when it comes to jobs so it's nice to have that kind of boing that uh micro location within mesa and then you know there was some nice you know uh new mixed use and retail developments going on um you know there was a target uh uh pretty close i think uh within like a quarter mile to the West, um, you know, Fry's grocery store. So solid location. Um, and then, you know, I guess, you know, in just kind of getting into the deal, um, you know, obviously like we wanted to, um, you know, add value to the project and it was, it, it was definitely in need of, um, you know, an elaborate, uh, kind of uh value add project and programmed for renovating the units. And, like I kind of touched on earlier, um, enhancing the curb appeal and the amenities was a big thing. Um, obviously because you know, when, a prospective renter is, is coming by to see the property and potentially going to rent a unit at your property, you kind of want to make a, a nice presentation. Um, and you know, that's things like, you know, making sure the, the paint is up to date and has a nice color scheme, um, exterior unit doors, the wrought iron, the clubhouse are all looking, you know, um, in good shape, better exterior lighting, good landscaping. Um, and then, you know, maybe doing like a clubhouse conversion, like we kind of talked about where the, the, the property manager's desk area looks a bit nicer. The, uh, the, Clubhouse itself is more inviting to guests and it's more vibrant. There's more energy, um, and has more up-to-date amenities, um, and finishes. And then, um, also doing things, you know, like parking lot repairs and things like that, where, you know, maybe the property itself looks really nice, but then like the, the parking lot, uh, that surrounds it doesn't look in so good shape. So (coughs) it's nice to, uh, or it's, you know, it's a good idea to address all those immediate needs that kind of like, Uh, give that first impression to a prospective renter and kind of garners their interest. Yeah, and I think
0: a good place to start kind of discussing what we saw was the in-place rents today, you know, on the property, and then kind of what we saw at our comp, and then we could explain what we're thinking of doing in the units. So, you know, in-place rents where the one beds were going for on average $942 a month, and then chime in if I got any of these numbers off, Evan, and Mm -hmm. then the two bed, one baths were going for 1,050, yeah. Um and then next door we have a deal that's was renovated like ten years ago and they're getting fourteen hundred uh for their or they're getting thirteen fifty for their one beds and then they're getting
1: fifteen fifty for their two beds. This is when we started the process. Those are actually just uh in place numbers as well. So there was actually If you just looked at like the last lease that was signed um, for each particular unit, there was a lot of loss to lease just already in place that we were kind of uh, starting off from. So um, like for the two beds in particular, um, the in-place rent was uh, $1,000, and uh, $1,050. I think we had maybe six total leases that were signed for two bedroom units uh, that were signed at 1250. So that's already a $200 pop just what's in place so that was kind of our our starting point and then like you said you know um we had a very good comp you know next door to kind of go off of where it was actually um you know i say a carbon copy because it pretty it pretty much is where it's uh it was built two years prior to our property um there's six residential buildings plus a clubhouse um kind of a, a horseshoe perimeter parking lot um same number of units same unit mix same form floor plans so it was quite literally you know a carbon copy and like you said you know um uh, when we were doing our uh underwriting um for this property and determining what the market rents should be it, it's helpful when you have probably you know the the world's best comp right next door where like you said you know they they had renovated these over the years um, but it was not up to kind of today's standards when it came to finishes. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, their units, you know, they were renovated. They had in unit washer dryers, which was similar to what we wanted to do um, at our property. But the, the, the finishes were outdated in that, you know, the cabinets were, you know, a, a dark brown, the, the, ca- or the countertops are kind of like a dark mustardy, brown granite, um, black and white appliances. The washer dryer was right in the kitchen. So they were getting, you know, 1350 and 1550 for their one beds and two beds with those level of finishes. So, you know, and also looking at that, we say, Hey, we have the same property right next door. If we, and those, uh, you know, those renovations were done between 2012 and 2014. So we were just saying like, let's renovate to, you know, the next decade of 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 finishes and style to appeal to you know the the demographic and like the the renter demand that's coming in um so you know from that our kind of foundation was you know just assuming a rent that we can achieve that's slightly higher than the rents that are occurring next door so we ultimately chose 1400 and 1600 um in our rents when we were um, first underwriting the deal right so it's interesting when you
0: you give this initial you're painting this picture you know of the property initially and there's like well what what the heck could these guys have liked about it where the the paint was old looking there's repairs to be made the colors are all wrong but it's you know again these things are based on what they make and we're looking at a property where we could raise the rents on the one beds when we're done 450 dollars and 550 on the two bedrooms mm-hmm. and then uh you know just and while you do that you upgrade the whole thing you're upgrading it for the city of mesa you're upgrading the the type of render you'd have at these prices would be different than who you'd have at the lower one so you're upgrading the, the property just, there's a lot a lot to like about it and then that's so that's what drew us to it and yeah sometimes it's hard to envision this but we were lucky that there's literally a property next door that we could just just look at
1: yeah and um <coughs> that's the really interesting thing too because you know uh when i've been on the podcast before so, uh, so much of what we've talked about in the past in our underwriting process is um, what we'll call like shopping the comps or go shopping, where we'll actually go to, you know, the three, four five properties that we've identified as being the most similar to our property or the one that we're underwriting and the one that we're, um, you know, obviously uh, interested in buying. Um, and we do that to, you know, see the finishes, um, understand what the rents are, kind of get a feel for what the community is like, what the amenities are like. Um, but usually you're, you know, you're kind of extrapolating information from a uh, another comp and then applying it towards uh, our subject property, whereby you're uh, making adjustments for maybe it's in a worse location or maybe it's in a way better location than my property. Maybe the units are slightly bigger, maybe the finishes are a lot different. Maybe the community amenities are way better or way worse or it could be a a number of different things but um that's the funny thing in having you know such a similar property next door where it's just kind of like a one-to-one relationship in terms of like if you renovate you know your property to this level this is what you should expect in terms of rent so it's kind of interesting and that you know (laughs) we don't have to do those sort of mental adjustments in terms of you know Like I said, adjusting for a better/worse location, or newer/older vintage, or better/worse amenities, we have the same property next door. Yeah,
0: and it's the first time in my career basically where there's been a uh, a a deal like this where we've been using just like the property next door as the comp. You know, I think there's been some deals that I've there's been some that I've bought where I've had I've had the comp, you know, but it was like within my portfolio, and then I'm (laughs) doing a similar thing. This was the first time where I was using somebody else's like exact comp because there was uh in 2013 wicker park i had bought a 16 unit it was a like a failed condo deal and then the same developer a a year later another one of his deals came out at eight unit basically the same property so i already knew all the rents and expenses so i had a perfect comp for that uh to use but really this has like been uh been rare when that happens so yeah it's exciting. So yeah, where what are we planning on doing with the renovation level then?
1: Yeah, so um, it's going to be a full scope renovation. So one of the big things is that we wanted to add uh, washer dryers um, to uh, each of the units. Um, there's currently a, a laundry facility at the property, um, but you know, with um, you know, just for everyone, you know, if you're lugging, you know, your dirty laundry, you know, across, you know uh the the community to go to the laundry room it's a bit of a hassle um so it is a, it is a large you know amenity to have an in-unit washer dryer where i have the added privacy and convenience of just being able to you know do my laundry right in my own home um so and that's one of the things that uh was you know pretty consistent when we were looking at you know nearby comps is that they had the in-unit washer dryer including you know the property next door to us um, so that was, you know, a large item. Um, and then, you know, things like vinyl flooring, stainless steel appliances, um, new countertops, uh, updated cabinetry, um, new plumbing and electric fixtures, really just refresh, you know, the entire unit, and make it feel, you know, kind of modern and up to date in terms of, you know, its finish level.
0: You know, one thing that I think would be interesting for people to hear about is kind of how it works for us when we come into town. Cause I, I remember on, when we saw this deal, we were also touring another one uh, another property that was for sale and then when you're talking about what the, the comps had laundry in it you know the reason we know that is because evan and i went to all the comps yeah we were you know we had just we were moving to phoenix and uh <laughs> you know we wanted to find some apartments together and so um you know so we went I, you know we toured two properties that were for sale and then we started touring the comps that were you know would have been the rental buildings that a renter would be Comparing these with once mm-hmm. we were done renovating them, because we knew looking at the condition of the property we were looking at buying, we were going to need to renovate it. And then, what's our competition look like then?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, exactly. And um, <coughs> the, you know, the, that's obviously something that you know we always want to do is where we're actually going to the nearby competitors to see what um, you know their finish levels are, and then what uh, rents they're currently asking and leasing their units for. Um, this is something that we we always do up front as part of our underwriting process, but it's typically done through a screen like we're um, you know using sources like uh, Yardi Matrix to at least uh, kind of start on the foundation of like what are the properties that we should be looking at to start, and then um, you know we go through the process of actually going to um, that property's website, seeing if they have a list of floor plans and units available, see what they're asking. Um, um in terms of rent for those units and then um you know actually calling uh into the you know the 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 property managers um line and asking like what units are available what can i get for this um, i'm looking for one bedroom or two bedroom or three bedroom um, i'm not really sure um and then getting that information but then it's so important to actually uh go and see the actual property as well not just doing it through the screen because um like, like you know i kind of i uh, touched on earlier but you know when um i'm kind of playing the role as a renter i'm making decisions and trade-offs in terms of what i want from a locational standpoint what i want from a unit finishes standpoint and um you know all those different factors and that's not something that you can necessarily do you know just from your desktop right we want to go in person
0: right once we get serious we're, we're shopping as potential renters and I, I remember vividly from this trip where all the clubhouses we went to like upon entry to the to the competing buildings they were all really nice and so that was just like the most obvious thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: that and then you know really like this the not only do we have the comp next door but then we had you know three four other comps we went to that sort of justified these rents we were we were we were ex- expecting to hit mm-hmm so great where do you want to take this then evan yeah
1: and uh you know like you said we um when we did come to tour the property when we did go down phoenix we had two in mind that we wanted to see um actually were both from the same broker and they were they're pretty similar deals um both about 90 units um 70s vintage one was in uptown phoenix one was in mesa both were non-institutional ownership so When I say that, I mean, you know, usually it's a high net worth investor, um, someone who might be out of state and just, you know, manages the property for cash flow and occupancy um, and doesn't necessarily have the endeavor to um, really take their property to the next level in terms of renovations and finishes and amenities. Um, So we had identified those two properties as ones that we liked, um, underwrote both and, you know, like the profile of both um, both infill locations. Um, and, you know, especially, um, when it comes to our deal in Mesa in that zip code alone, um, you know, when I say infill, I I really mean it where, you know, there's only six units per a thousand people that are under construction currently in that zip code, which not, is not only very low for Phoenix, but is very low for just growth and like sun melt, uh, markets across the country. Um, so, you know, that's obviously helpful for us because, you know, we don't have uh, you know, competition necessarily in our immediate vicinity oh, where um, you know, if uh, a lot of new supplies dropped, maybe we kind of struggle to uh achieve our rent. So that was something that was important as well. Um, but both deals, you know, had a lot of, I guess, you know, we'll call it meat on the bone or just, you know, uh value add potential where, you know, they needed the curb appeal, they needed um you know, unit interior renovations. They needed a refresh to the amenities and um, all those sorts of things. So um, both had, you know, strong return profiles. Um, But the that Uptown Phoenix property um, that we ended up passing on, that was actually on a boiler chiller system. So both deals kind of had a similar profile, but we gravitated more so to the Mesa property just kind of because of that uh, factor. Um and you know we spent like I said uh, a significant portion of the day touring the comps, not only our properties and you know understanding what's what's needed, uh you know right now and where can we add value, but also going to the comps and kind of seeing what the um the competitors look like and you know kind of getting a better feel for what should be going into our model and verifying assumptions.
0: Yeah, and I mean my recollection, we not not only did the other one that was also for sale have that boiler chiller but I think the the deal we bought was stabilizing on our numbers to like a higher yield on cost like to a better deal Mm -hmm. I thought and it was an easier renovation so it was like a no-brainer which one to pursue for yeah and
1: then you had the you know the carbon copy property right next door that just gives a lot more certainty into our underwriting which is very nice Well,
0: take us through the the bidding process then I mean I know we went down there in November and then they weren't, you know, let's, you should, you pick it up.
1: Let's yeah. Yeah. So it was actually, you know, a pretty long and drawn out bidding process. Uh, maybe it felt that way because we kind of hit the ground running when the the, the property initially came out. Um, it, it was a marketed deal. Um, and actually one of our colleagues in, in Phoenix said that, you know, this one particular broker has some really, you know, good deals that you guys should take a look at. So, you know, we took a look at that one and then the Uptown Phoenix deal as well. Um, and ended up liking the profile, um, of both and, you know, the returns fit for us. Um, so yeah, um, that, <clears throat> that listing began in early November. Um, they weren't sure if it was going to go to a call for offers. Um, because it was a high net worth investor, you know, if he had received, you know, an offer that he really liked to start off with, maybe he would bite on it. Um, so, you know, after we toured the deal, we knew we liked it. We submitted an LOI at the initial pricing guidance that we were given. Um, you know, we kind of had a feeling that it would be a competitive process. Um, and, you know, that wasn't necessarily a secret because, you know, this was, uh, a point in time where the Phoenix market was the most liquid it's ever been the most sales, um, you know, and just total units being traded. Um, I think, you know, in the last 10 years or a lot of other investors wanting to get into Phoenix and buy this type of profile of deal. Um, and yeah, so we had a feeling, you know, it'd be a competitive process and we kind of wanted to get our foot in the door early. So we submit that, that first, uh, LOI and, you know, tried to kick the door down and really kind of preempt the CFO, just so we were limiting the the number of other bidders that we'd have to go up against. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, we probably submitted one or two more LOIs before there was a, a, a call for offers. Um, you know, uh, gradually making our terms and pricing a little bit more competitive uh, each time. And, you know, it wasn't enough to ultimately preempt the CFO. But, um, you know, it 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 ended up going to the the call for offers and it was a process that, you know, included several several groups. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but, um, you know, we submitted a competitive offer and we were invited into a best and final round. So, you know, when there is a call for offers, typically it can kind of go, you know, couple couple rounds afterward. Um, and, you know, often for you know, best and final round, which I, I guess I'll call like the second round of offers. Um, you know, usually in that round, you have to submit um, a buyer questionnaire or do some sort of buyer interview. interview, whereby, you know, it's an important step in the process where you're kind of selling yourself as a buyer, both to the broker and the seller, because they want to have certainty that one, you'll close and two, you'll be easy to work with. Um, and they want to know things like your track record and your portfolio, like, you know, how long have you been investing in Phoenix? Why are you targeting this? You know, how, how large is your portfolio? Do you have success in like actually raising capital, um, and executing deals like this? Um, where's your equity come from? Cause obviously they want to make sure that their deal is going to close and, um, that there's a source of capital from us, um, to use for that. Um, what's our debt source? What are our assumptions? Um, And then underwriting and market research of the property as well, because, um, let's say, you know, there's a questionnaire and they're asking what rents are you stabilizing to? And we're, we're completely off or we're, you know, we should be underwriting 1650 for the two beds and we're at a, uh, 2000 that might send a red flag or two. Um, and maybe, you know, uh, that buyer, you know, down the road, they realize like, Oh, I can't get those rents. I'm going to cancel this deal. And, you know, that's a process where the broker and seller kind of lose and then they have to remarket the property. Um, but, um, you know, we uh, submitted a uh, questionnaire form. Um, and, you know, this was something that we um, weren't necessarily asked to do, but we wanted to give a, a person kind of vouch for us when it came to like uh, kind of representing us as a buyer, where um, actually another broker from the same company. Um, actually, uh, you had done deals with him in the past and, um, you know, he was able to vouch for our reputation and our track record of closing deals, um, not being one to, to back out of deals or not being able to, uh, source the equity, you know, and saying that we're good underwriters, we know the market, things like that. And that, that actually carried a lot of weight because, um, you know, our final bid for the property was 26 million and we actually, we weren't the highest bidder. Um, So all those things kind of compiled together, you know, in terms of the the, the buyer interview or questionnaire process, getting some, um, you know, I guess recommendations from other brokers that you know were good buyers that that holds a lot of weight, and we actually ended up winning the deal because of those reasons.
0: Yeah, and so that's a big learning lesson for everybody, and then us in- included seeing that be successful, where you know we had relied on a prior reputation where it was a broker. And you guys all know who you are, but that's that's in Chicago, and I've i probably bought like ten deals where he's been a part of them, in some form or fashion. This broker, and so I asked him if he could reach out to his Phoenix counterpart and tell him what he thinks of us, and he he did, and he he uh, had email me back and told him, uh, told me that he said you guys are the realest buyers I've got, you know. So <laughs> that was uh, definitely most appreciated and helped us get the deal. That and then our, our earnest money, you know, it's really competitive in Phoenix where. Especially a deal this size, it would be really rare today to get that without any non-refundable earnest money day one, and having a portion of that be released. And so on this deal, we we put up a million dollars of earnest money day one, and it was released to the seller. Uh, if they wanted to take it out of the from the title company, and put it in their own bank bank account, they they could do that. And that that also I'm sure had helped us win. But not, it's kind of like that's that's somewhat market, you know, to have that earnest money be released, but we had the whole amount be released. And then that's a,
1: a good amount of money of earnest money, obviously, as a percent of the deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that was also a very important term when it came to, to winning the deal, um, because the seller wanted to complete a 1031 exchange with the proceeds that they received from this transaction. Um, And, you know, uh, they, they really wanted, you know, the, the larger earnest money, uh, deposit so that, you know, they could use that to, uh, potentially source deals. Um, so that was one of the terms that, um, actually helped, you know, get us across the finish line as well.
0: Yeah. Cause they'll be out on there, you know, finding their replacement property and they'll have earnest money out. And if they want to stay in Phoenix, it'll be non-refundable as well. You know, so they want to make sure they have a solid deal with us. And then that's why, you know, who knows who we were competing with, but then they look at the whole thing where, Just because maybe someone was potentially offering a little bit more money than us doesn't mean they're going to be able to close or close at that price you know maybe they they didn't appreciate how much work needed to be done here at the property and then the seller might have been worried they were gonna ask to uh, to to adjust the price so we had you know communicated like a really nice offering to them where we you know, have fully evaluated everything and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, here's a recommendation, here's someone to speak to from the same company you work at that um, that they already knew each other too, those two brokers, so that was helpful. They've mm-hmm. gone on all these awards trips for being, uh, you know, top producers together. So then they already knew each other. Um, so that, that was helpful. But yeah, that's, and then two, one thing I guess we should touch on, it's similar to the other deals in terms of how we minimize risk around having non-refundable earnest money is we really we did everything except for the physical inspection i would describe it uh, prior to signing the purchase contract you know where we got an old title report we got an old survey we uh we ran our own environmental uh report online and then did we get an old phase one on this one or
1: uh i believe we did and we we did get an old physical report as well okay nice and then um the the own environmental report you know that's not ourselves going out and doing test work we utilize another third-party source that uh, leverages like all different like government research uh, and like record searches. Um, so they're able to identify if, you know, a property has like an underground underground you know, storage tank, you know, underneath the property. Um, and then, you know, different, uh, uh, I guess, instances where maybe there's a, you know, an environmental, environmental red flag Um, so we were able to kind of tackle that early, um, and know that, you know, the property was clean before, you know, we were, um, putting down our earnest money deposit. And then in addition, you know, having the physical report, the old phase one environmental report, all those things, you know, it was very helpful in us, uh, getting comfortable in, you know, releasing that much money and, you know, earnest money deposit.
0: Right. And when we toured the property in person, the main stuff we were looking at would be some of the bigger ticket items you would check out during a physical inspection so you know what we did when we first went to the property is we're we're looking at okay what kind of electric panels are here you know because on a prior deal that we're we're buying it has these uh uh, stab lock panels where they're going to all need to be replaced and you know that's a big expense so then that's on that deal it's 2200 bucks a unit and so that you know if this is going to be the same on a 96 unit that's like you know 200 grand you're going to have to spend on electric and then so with that we look at what kind of panels are there and it wasn't those then we asked about what type of wiring what for the electric was it and we were told it was copper um, and then we look at the plumbing so then that we can see that there's copper pipes coming out of the wall and if you want to do that yourself you check that out under the vanity either in the kitchen or the bathroom and you'll see g- copper coming out and then what would be the alternative product use would be uh steel so galvanized pipe is what people call it and then we did the same thing with the drains you know asked a bunch of questions to the people on site asked the broker if they could ask the seller like what kind of drains do these have um because we want to get all that stuff out of the way uh on the front end we went and kind of walked off to the side of the property we could see what type of uh air conditioning was on the roof and it's like a modern what we kept finding at every turn was this is like a modern building essentially even though it's like 50 years old this is a it's it's using all those same systems you would use in in 2022 so um that that we were trying to all vet out on the front end because there's not time to figure this out later we need to figure it out sort of today if you're going to have like if you're going to have a million dollars of money non-refundable so mm-hmm. then again on the heating and cooling it has uh air conditioning uh condensers on the roof and then just the heat pump that blows the air around in the unit so uh just kind of all modern modern stuff and so we are able to kind of check out all the stuff we would normally do in like a back in the old days when earnest money was refundable and you had a due diligence right. period you know you you would figure this stuff out all you know after the fact but now you know it's uh, obviously it's way more competitive so uh you know you got to figure out a way to still do all this stuff i would say and but you got to do it ahead of time so well nice well let's start talking about the numbers then so where um where do you want to start us off on that
1: yeah i guess um Yo, in terms of kind of what the, the deal looked like, and you know, I think one of my and our favorite metrics to look at is kind of like a stabilized, untrended cap rate. Whereas if you were to go in and add the value today and reset your rents to whatever market is and you know, stabilize expenses, um, look at it from a stabilized pro forma divided by my purchase price plus all my renovation costs, Um, that was a stabilized cap of a five, um, and actually a going in cap. So in place cap rate where, you know, you look at in place rents, um, and, uh, you know, our stabilized expenses, we're going in at a two nine, which is that that's market in Phoenix. You know, it, it seems low, but, you know, we see the probably 80% of the deals that we underwrite, you know, the cap rate is the going in cap rate is somewhere between, two and a half and three and a half, I'd have to say. So, so much of it is, um, you know, marking rents to market, adding value. Um, that's, you know, really largely the, the opportunities that we see these days. And um, that's how, that's how they pencil.
0: Yeah. And so what we like, you know, I would say the in-place cap rate, that's almost like a, it's a not, not a useful metric these days with how much we're going to change the, mm-hmm. how much the rents and expenses are going to change on this. So I really like to look at the untrended, you know, yield on cost and then uh once it's stabilized and then the, the, the trended yield on cost. So that's what we really look at because then to your point, if we just sort of hit those rents we're talking about now, the fourteen hundred and the sixteen hundred, complete our renovation if that could just be could just be done at like at the snap of a fingers, you're at a five point zero cap. That's a really strong deal. I mean that's like a cap rate you'd find in the Midwest. Yet you're not in the midwest you're in you know one of the fastest growing parts of the country where there's a severe housing shortage in an area where they're not building that much i mean this is that's so that's that's what drew us to it you know and so then um you know we had in total about a three million dollar you know total renovation budget on this uh so all that you know includes when we talk about what's our you know stabilized yield on cost or our you know finish cap rate whatever term people are using like it, that's your purchase price plus the $3 million in renovation. Download our hundred plus page passive investing guidebook today at riseinvest.com slash downloads. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then three, yeah, 3.1 million in total capital improvements um, for the interiors addressing all the deferred maintenance and also adding some uh, contingency on top of that as well. Um, and then, you know, just kind of getting through like the rest of the assumptions, you know, we, uh, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but you know, we maintain a database of every single underwritten opportunity where, you know, we have hundreds of deals in Phoenix that are similar vintage, um, profile location. And I'd say, you know, the significant majority of them are stabilizing to, um, mid 4% cap rates. Um, so you add the value, you stabilize it to a four and a half on an untrended basis. Um, so, um, you know, uh, we, and then, you know, to that, and, you know, we, we chose to exit, um, assume an exit cap rate of 4.3 after three years. Um, and, you know, if you apply that to uh, kind of a today's value, um, our stabilized value would be 33 and a quarter million. So we'd be creating about 4 million in value, um, just from our, our, our value add strategy. And you know, what got us comfortable using that 4.3% cap rate. Um, you know, for one thing, there were things, uh, in our underwriting that weren't included, but could potentially, um, be done to the property to add even more value. Um, one thing in particular, is that the, the clubhouse building itself was really large and it can actually accommodate, um, you know, more potential units. So, you know, in looking to the property directly next door to us, that's, you know, I keep calling it the carbon copy because it is, they have a large clubhouse where they actually, um, converted unused rooms in the back to, uh, create a three bedroom apartment. Um, so our property is 96 units. Theirs is 97 units same exact unit mix, but an additional three bedroom apartment. And I think, you know, we looked at it as well and you could add maybe uh, two or three studio units would be feasible as well. So, you know, that's something, you know, when we're looking at these deals is we want to maximize, you know, the potential for the mac- the next buyer as well, where, you know, they can come in and <coughs> identify the opportunity and see, you know, an avenue to uh, add even more value to the property. So that's something that we didn't necessarily underwrite, but it's something that we kind of contemplated. And it's something that is kind of in our back pocket in terms of like, if we were to go sell this, you know, within two, three years, maybe that's something that the next buyer contemplates himself, or maybe that's something that we end up doing. And then there's more units to, uh, renovate for the next buyer. Um, so that that's really important where, you know, you want to maximize your next buyer pool. And that's kind of how we got comfortable with, maybe what seems to be a uh aggressive exit cap rate assumption
0: yeah and we also i mean even on the rent growth we were pretty conservative compared to what's actually been occurring you know so even though we had a 4.3 exit cap assumption our rent growth we only assumed five percent a year for the first three years and then it dropping down to four percent in year four when in reality the rent growth and and you have this memorized it's eight percent greater than eight percent over what period of time
1: uh, greater than 8% over the last 10 years.
0: Right. And then I don't think there's any years like on the, that we even could find that are below five in like recent, you know,
1: 15 yeah. years. Yeah. There hasn't been a year below 5% rent growth since 2012 in right. Phoenix, according to Yardi data.
0: Right. So then we assumed, you know, essentially like we're a conservative rent growth. So it, uh, it could work out definitely where the rent growth is way more than five, but we end up selling it at a higher cap rate and just are kind of right back in the same same place in terms of sale price so that's one thing that i always keep that i always personally do is i like to look at these things a bunch of different ways you know and that was kind of one way where uh you know i looked at it like a bunch of different scenarios okay what if there's 10 percent rent growth but then we sell it at a five cap how does that look and then Mm -hmm. we landed on this scenario because it's kind of most it seems most probable but then also like falls within kind of the norms of what people would be used to looking at people would not be used to looking at it spreadsheet that says 10 percent rent growth even though that's what's happening so um nice i mean in terms of the returns on the deal you know we had this penciled on a three-year hold and deal level that was a 25 and a half irr and then a 1.97 equity multiple so really strong returns where it's interesting you know having done this for a little bit just kind of seeing these deals where the returns are very high because we are in a fast growing market Uh, Inflation, inflation, inflation is all you hear about. And then uh, we are implementing a value-add strategy to get even, you know, higher returns, you know, sort of forced uh, appreciation on the property. But it's interesting. There's basically no cash flow on this deal. You know, we're buying it and then we're going to take the next three years to renovate these 96 apartments and then we're going to sell it. So it's a totally different animal compared to what I, you know, what I used to do and what like most people think of real estate investing is like, well, you buy it and then you just pay your loan down over time and cash flow it Mm -hmm. and this this market you know as uh just in in the whole not just saying in phoenix but just kind of everywhere has kind of forced people to kind of take on new strategies do different things and some people they've sort of pivoted where okay i used to do apartments now i'm doing office or i'm doing self-storage or they're they're doing something different to create maybe cash flow or do something that they want instead of getting into like a riskier kind of thing or something that I would know less about. I just sort of figured, okay, let's go for on these uh, you know, Phoenix deals a total return strategy. And this mm-hmm. is all something you obviously already know, but like where that's that's one thing that is like would be if we had our cash on cash on this, it's basically whatever money comes in, we're just put it back into the property and there wouldn't be much cash flow anyways because we're holding units empty to renovate it. So those returns sound high, but you basically put your money in and then you just get at the end all of it back but basically double Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, it's an interesting kind of moment in time where that's just how the market is working. And, you know, you could choose to, if you really want a flow, you could start buying apartments in Indiana or Michigan or, uh, wherever the cap rates would be higher or be a lender, you know, like there's still ways you could do it. This is just what we've, we've liked. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And just to, to add to that point, you know, um, not only in Phoenix, but like in like other growth markets as well, where, you know, rent growth was 20, 25% over the last year. Um, you know, pretty much all the deals that we do underwrite in Phoenix have a similar profile, whether it's, you know, 1970s value add or, you know, newer vintage. And, you know, we're just doing a, a lease up or a mark to market. All these deals pretty much have zero cash flow. You know, you're lucky to get, you know, positive cash flow you know, probably in the second year of your underwriting. Um, because, you know, we are in a environment where interest rates are high um, and cap rates are low. You know, like I said, most of the in-place, uh, um, in-place cap rates of the deals that we underwrite, you know, they're plus or minus three, three and a quarter. So, so much of the deal is adding the value. Um, and then, you know, you start to get the positive cash flow within, you know, year two, year three. <clears throat> Um, but it is all being reinvested in the property, but you know, that's not unique to just this deal. That's, that's for pretty much every deal that's out on the market, at least for, for Sunbelt and yeah. growth markets.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting if you've never looked, you know, in like in the Sunbelt or somewhere where rents have grown like that, you're thinking, well, look at these people, cause I've explained this to even just owners in Chicago or brokers in Chicago, cause they go, I don't understand. Why would you ever buy a three cap in Phoenix? Compared to like a five and a half cap in Chicago, it does. I don't understand why you would why would you choose that. You make more buying a five and a half cap, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you go, no, that's not that's not that. If that is stayed like that, you're right, but it doesn't stay like that. In a once we're you know on especially these smaller deals we did, we're be in a in a year we're going to be at like a five something cap. Where your Chicago deal is probably pretty close to five and a half still because you got all the, you know, you might, your rents will grow, but so will your property taxes and other expenses. So you, you're, you're still at, like, let's say you're five and a half in Chicago. Meanwhile, in Phoenix, okay, you get it to a five cap. Then the next year rents grow a ton as well. And pretty soon they, they cross and you're at a higher, you know, cap rate in Phoenix or in Texas or Florida, wherever these places are, where rents are booming. And then that, so like that, you need to really wrap your head around in today's times. Cause that I had a reporter from The Real Deal ask me about that, too, because they they were like, cap rates are so low in the Sunbelt, you make more buying here where they're higher. It's not the case, Mm -hmm. because also in the Sunbelt, you're going to sell it at a lower cap rate. You're not going to sell it at, we're not going to sell this at a 2.9 cap, but Mm -hmm. our NOI is going to be up so much that you still sell it at a four-something cap and you make way more. Yeah. So that was... uh, that needs like some explaining. If you're not, it's easy for me and you to know that because we're look at the deals and go, wow, this thing in Phoenix makes way more than this deal in Milwaukee or wherever. But that's because rents have gone up so much. Like you're saying, even on a, a newer deal in Phoenix, it's like there's 20% uh, of room to go on the rents that you could raise it. And then that's, you know, that's going to increase your value a ton.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why it's important too to kind of quote the um, in-place cap rate as well as the untrended cap rate. Because you know, if I'm not privy to what's going on um, in the Phoenix market where you know rents have grown 20, 25%, and pretty much every deal that we do underwrite, there's loss to lease of 10, 20, 30 percent. Um, you know, it might be easy from like a traditional underwriting sense, especially if I'm in you know stable Midwest markets where rents haven't grown you know substantially over the last you know year or two years. Um, I can just pretty much take the, the in-place rent roll, then add my value add program, and then maybe underwrite, you know, two, 300 bucks in terms of a rental premium on top of my in-place rents. But that's not really the case in Phoenix where rents have grown so much. And you're trying to, you know, absorb all that demand that has met Phoenix, where, you know, you are going from a sub three cap to a five cap. Um, and, you know, that's in large part because, you know, um right now phoenix and like arizona is the third fastest growing state in you know the united states only behind texas and florida um but you know with with uh, arizona and phoenix in particular you know there's only there's only one major metro whereas you know texas has (coughs) san antonio austin dallas fort worth houston and then you know all the cities in florida as well whereas you know everything's really concentrated in that phoenix market when it comes to the overall state's population growth. Um, so yeah. And you know, that's, that's the profile when, you know, you're underwriting these deals, it's, it's low cash flow, but your stabilized cap rate, I mean, you, you add a lot of value and that's usually 200, 250 bips above your in-place cap.
0: Yeah. So if you're look, end up looking in the Sunbelt, you really got to have those, what are today's rents dialed in? Cause if you just look at it and go, okay, I'll buy this and, you know, assume the rents grow three or 4% a year, like, some, like a deal in the Midwest, let's say these will never make sense. You got to realize, like, kind of how on this one we did, where okay, this can be
1: raised 500 some dollars after a renovation. In reality, the most predictive statistic when it comes to um, actually forecasting the future in rent growth is just looking at past rent growth. And, like, you know, we said, you know, there hasn't been a year below 5% rent growth since 2012. The market's been averaging 5 plus percent rent growth over the last 15 years. So including the, the GFC. So, you know, we feel very comfortable about those assumptions.
0: So I think let's touch on the financing then. So I think this, this was the first time I had used a debt fund. I mean, we had, uh, never done a debt fund loan before. Interesting process, you know, really a lot of, a lot of work, you know, I've done a bunch of agency loans and I had thought those, um, those were, you know, more work than any other loan out there. And I would think this is probably comparable in terms of workload. Um, you know, because it's a non-recourse loan, so they re- they want, need to really understand everything because if um, you know, if we were not able to make payments or what have you, like we we could just give the property back to them. So they need to have everything figured out as, as a lender. Um, and yeah, in terms of so for the deal, just to refresh everybody's memory, we paid 26 million dollars for the property. Roughly a three million dollar renovation budget. Uh, so then this this loan that we got, it's a seventy two percent loan to cost loan, and what how it was set up is its initial funding of nineteen and a half million dollars, and then from there a hundred percent of our construction dollars would be funded from the loan. So another three million dollars, which would get us up to about twenty two and a half million dollars. And then keep in mind, now that sounds kind of high compared to. What we're paying at 26 million, but we're putting another three million into the property, and then the value would be up into the, you know, mid to low 30s at that point. So, it makes makes sense to do a loan like that, and we're you know keeping it you know relatively conservative uh, from that standpoint. And then I think one thing that I like to do, just to kind of minimize costs, is this loan. It's a it's a three year term loan, and so that's our the that's how long we're planning on holding the property. So if we want, you know, if this happens quicker, like our renovation strategy, we could always refinance uh, earlier if we want. Um, But, you know, we have a a loan that's going to go for as long as we're going to hold it. And then ideally we, um, you know, we we keep this same loan on the property the whole time and then sell it not to incur a bunch of additional costs, um, you know, doing, uh, you know, doing additional loans. So,
1: you know, another thing that was obviously very important to the, the 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 lending aspect was um because the loan was a floating rate, you know, where we have a spread above an underlying index, um which is a uh, term sofer. Um we were required to purchase um what we'll call a cap um on our loan which um we we purchased a cap. It was a two-year SOFR cap at three percent. And the way that it works is, um, you know, you can uh, customize your cap to be a certain number of years or a uh, certain percentage. Whereby, you know, if we buy a two-year sover cap at three percent, and our underlying index exceeds three percent within our first. Two years of owning the property, we would not pay above that three percent. So we're effectively capped at three percent. Um, and you know, we looked at a variety of different scenarios where, if you know, we were to hold, you know, cap, um, you know, between one and three years at you know different percentage levels, whether it be one, two, and three, um, we ultimately chose the the two-year cap at at three percent.
0: Yeah. And one thing that I found interesting with, you know, buying the cap is you actually, you buy that on the day of closing. So, you know, you have all your costs and everything you've, you know, figured out, but then one of these, and these, these caps are not cheap, you know, our two year 3% strike cap. We initially were told that was going to be 210,000. Um, and then, but once we actually, and that's what we ended up moving forward with, but what's interesting is once it went to auction, the, the actual price that, uh, we ended up paying, and what won the 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 bid on getting this was one hundred and seventy five thousand. So, thirty five thousand less, kind of once things really got once the action got heated up on the pricing. So that's that was a uh, uh, interesting to see that, and then to just kind of the whole decision around what cap to buy, where our the three year cap at three percent was three hundred and seventy thousand. So you would pay for that third year another hundred and sixty thousand, and then uh, we asked what's a one year cap, you know, at a 3% strike. And today that was, that was only 55,000. So this was, you know, kind of a thought like which, so then which one would you buy? Would you pay the 160,000 extra and have the whole term of your loan, uh, you know, have the cap already in place. And we ended up going with the two year, uh, for a few reasons, but one of them, like a big reason for, for me in particular is, you know, we don't know for sure if we're gonna have this loan for the whole three years. You know, we think we will, but you never know. Maybe it'll make sense to refinance, pull some money out, uh, and give it back to our investor or, or what. And so then you're buying this cap that you might not really need. Um, and you can, one thing too, like, so that's, that's what we thought. You can also resell the cap. So then that uh, kind of, a lot of ways you think about this, you could say, well, there's a hole in the thinking. You could just resell it at the end but again, if a, a one-year cap today is fifty-five thousand, like you're not, you're not going to see a return on your hundred and sixty thousand. Really, it's still going to, um, you know. So we, we sort of thought, okay, let's go with that. We know we for sure have this loan for the two years, and then, uh, and that's why we landed on the two-year. Something else we've been thinking about, and we've priced out for future deals, is actually just buying a a cap that be at a much lower interest rate, and then essentially you have like a you've made your own debt fund fixed rate loan Uh, that's not something we're hearing a lot of people talk about but all these debt funds they do only variable you know uh floating rate debt so there's not a fixed rate option out there but you could make one you could say all right i have this debt fund that they'll do a 350 bip spread over sofa i'll buy a one percent sofa cap then the most i'll pay in this loan is four and a half percent those caps are expensive but you've then essentially You've created if it's a deal like this one, you've created positive leverage the whole time, where you're going to stabilize in your you know high five cap when you're done, and you're borrowing in the mid fours. Uh, you know that's that's something that we're looking at on future deals. So just want to bring that up and then kind of highlight the whole uh, process
1: of buying the the cap. Mm-hmm. And then um, we we purchased the cap from uh, Chatham Financial. Um, and one thing that's very helpful is that chatham is a great resource when it comes to um you know what the current interest rate environment is uh like we always download um the forward curves from that website uh but you know what's especially helpful and like you said you know we've looked at different scenarios with you know different terms and uh caps um is that they actually have a cap calculator on their website where you can actually enter in you know your specific loan amount um the number of years you want the the cap and then at what percentage you want it to be so you know when we're looking at all these different scenarios you know i'm not having to say email someone from chatham and asking what does a uh, two-year cap at two percent cost for a 15 million dollar loan I can just go online and type those inputs in and then we can just input that into our underwriting and then make a decision right then and there
0: yeah and as we were buying these looking at the different caps we could buy and getting live pricing we were then comparing that against the calculator they had on their website and it was coming out in line so i don't know how often they update that but it must be you know daily if not more frequently because it was it was right on so Well, nice. And then the equity on this deal, we raised it just from one individual. It's been somebody who's invested in a ton of our deals. Um, and so that uh, we kind of knew he had a certain amount of money he wanted to invest. And so this we knew would be a fit for him. So we, we put him in it. And so this is a interesting deal f- kind of, for us different than the last two, where this one, we we didn't do a syndication. We just had one person, you know, fund all the, the LP equity on it.
1: Yeah, then, uh, you know, kind of moving on to property management. Um, you know, obviously that's very, very crucial here because it is a large value <clears throat> add project with nearly, you know, hundred percent classic units and needing a lot of work to, uh, the amenities and, um, you know, things like the paint, the parking lot, the clubhouse, like all needed to be updated and refurbished. So, um, you know, we wanted to get into the deal and really address those, you know, major deferred maintenance and curb appeal items within the first several months of owning it. Um, cause like we said, that kind of sets the, you know, the, the precedent for, you know, your new renter base where they see a new property or not a new property, but, uh, you know, a property that's, you know, starting to re- really receive some love and, you know, some value add. Um, and then, you know, at the peak, we want to be delivering, you know, we, we, uh, underwrote, um, basically the renovation program to occur. So 96 total renovations, uh, evenly over a two year period. So when you look at the pace at which we're delivering, you know, new units, um, you know, at our peak, we're probably going to be, you know, delivering four to six renovated units per month. Um, and because, you know, we are on, uh, uh, short-term debt, you know, floating rate, you know, it's important to have, you know, keep up that pace so that we can, you know, produce cash flow and, um, you know, have a healthy return to our investors. So um, property management, obviously crucial here. And, you know, something that we did is we interviewed a long list of local property managers. And, you know, the one that we decided to go with here, uh, Cam, you know, something that was really important to us is that they have an in-house construction and design team. Where um, you know, not only do they have thousands of units uh, under management, but they've also renovated thousands of units in the market. They know you know costs and vendors. Um, they know the market well. They know rents well. Um, you know, I think before we had made that decision, we kind of talked about um, maybe sticking with a, a previous property manager that we had um, to do this. Um, but really they didn't have that um, in-house design and construction team. So we would probably need someone else on our own payroll to uh, manage those projects and, you know, make sure that they're getting done. Um, so, you know, it's very helpful to have a, a property manager who has so much scale and has so much experience in doing renovations, just like the one that we're, we're doing for uh, this deal.
0: Yeah, and there's so much coordination between the ownership, the property manager, and then the, the contractor doing this construction, where if you can kind of cut down on that coordination by if it's available, I definitely recommend you, you, you use it if you can find it, a property manager that can also do construction, assuming they can do it well. If they can't do it well, it's not actually helping you. That's creating more problems. But we, yeah, we came across Cam where I think we had said this on a on the Huntington podcast, but where we um we were touring a deal in Phoenix and it was the k- renovation quality was great and then we you know took a second to note who's you know who's doing this and then we got in touch with Cam and asked him who was doing the renovation and it's their their own people and so we're like okay great we got some stuff to talk to you about you know <laughs> so then that um that's why we went with them and we've been you know happy this far and um you think Let's, uh, let's talk about the closing a little, and then I'll jump into kind of how the renovation's been going since closing, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, getting the close, you know, we maintain an internal checklist of all the things that are required to close. Um, you know, it's very important to be diligent and on schedule with these things because it's easy to get behind. And, you know, especially when, you know, you're closing within two, three months of executing, you know, your purchase contract, you have to be moving things along and you have to know, uh, the status of each and everything. So, you know, things that we're tracking, you know, uh, loan documents, uh, our own borrower, borrower org docs, um, you know, wiring instructions, you know, making sure that we're getting, uh, uh, you know, the the final survey finished and getting a certified rent roll from the seller, um, making sure that we're, you know, getting all third party reports. And, um, you know, those are things that, you know, we're, we're making sure that are getting done. Um, you know, one thing um, that's important as well is um, keeping track of the settlement statement because that's something that the, the title company, they'll provide a draft for you um, while you're, you know, within the closing process. But, um, you know, if you look into it, sometimes things are inconsistent or missing. Um, so we actually go through the process of recreating it and comparing it to our numbers to make sure that, you know, the title company company uh, isn't missing something or there isn't a misunderstanding. And I think it was actually with uh, this deal, you know, I think we saw three, four, five, six drafts of the settlement statement um before the final one. and um, you know, n- until the the final one, there was no line item for the prepaid rents that were at the property. So you know, we closed um you know, at the end of the month, and there were already tenants that paid for that next month's rent. And that wasn't uh, labeled anywhere within the settlement statement. So because we would be acquiring it, when those rents would be due, those rents, uh, those prepaid rents should have been um, a credit to us on the on the settlement statement. So it's, you know, good practice to make sure that um, you're keeping track of everything like that. And then, you know, just staying on top of everyone for closing, you know, don't assume that everything is just being carried out willy nilly. And, you know, you have deadlines to meet. Um, so it's, you know, important to make sure that, you know, you're checking with title and you know, the seller and, you know, your own lawyer, making sure everything's getting done. Um, and just staying on top of everyone. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, kind of at the very end that we needed, um, two was uh, actually um, uh, a holdback agreement for $7,500 where actually the seller needed to obtain um, tax certification um, to, or uh, tax certificates whereby, you know, they, uh, the city, um, you know, says that they were indeed um, up to date with the taxes that were due on the, 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 um, the actually the, the rental payments um, on the property. So we actually uh, the 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 seller wasn't able to obtain those before our closing date. So we actually had a holdback agreement where you know we had an idea of what that value should be for the actual tax payment um, that would have been due from the seller, and because they didn't re- uh, get those certi- certificates on time, you know we wanted to make sure that we were holding back some money from their uh, sales proceeds or the proceeds that would be given to them. Um, and then, you know, one other thing that, you know, is really important is obviously like doing the the final walkthrough um, at the property and, you know, making sure that you know the day before you're going to close or the day you're going to close that the property is still in good shape. There's nothing that's material materially changed or, um, you know, no catastrophic instances of something happening um, where, you know, you hope that the worst scenario doesn't happen, but you know, never say never. Um, and um, yeah, so we make sure to send someone down there to, to check out the property before we close.
0: That's, that's spot on. I mean, it's interesting. Every closing is a little different. You know, I think this one, just like all the others though, we made, um, you know, making that settlement statement, you know, on your own, but also making it ahead of time. So then, you know, we're looking at it going, Hey, this is missing the prepaid rent, you know, category where we're not, uh, you know, just, Having someone tell us that, you know, we we notice that right away, um, so that's definitely you know not not only a, a tip to make that, but then make it ahead of time, so then when as numbers come in, you're not, you know, checking these very large numbers just kind of in like uh, under duress time wise, so that's definitely definitely right, nice. Well, yeah, I think that's um, you know, yeah, it was a great great execution. I mean, nice job, you know, running point on that and uh, you know finding the D eleven. So, you know, yeah. I think. Think one thing too, the um, uh, that you know I, I think about more and more kind of as I do just more deals. Like a lot of the money is really made in the execution, you know, after closing. Like people, they celebrate, you know, they go out, they have a closing dinner, they they celebrate this deal closing. But when I when I think back, like on a lot of the stuff that I've, what's funny too that I've liked doing the most, it was a lot of the actually executing the plan where we we set out to do something and then you do it and then you're getting the result you you know, you know anticipated. Like that's for me personally, really satisfying or, you know, we've had deals where we've exceeded what we thought would happen, you know, and that's, that's kind of where as I'm doing this more, I'm realizing like that's where a lot of the money's made. Obviously you got to find a good deal, but then, you know, you could, from here, we could squander it by doing the renovation slowly or uh, overpaying for some of the the different renovations that we're going to do. So kind of one thing that we made it a point to do on this was really hit the ground running where, you know, we, we brought probably 45 days before closing, we brought the electrical engineer and the plumbing engineer through the building to start getting ready to pull permits because you need to pull permits to add the laundry. So we had all that sort of stuff in process while we're still buying the deal. Uh, we did the same thing with getting uh, certain vendors out to the property where if especially if it's outside and, you know, we were having painters and landscapers out to the property prior to closing, uh, in order to, you know, start getting prices on that, where, especially in a place like Arizona, where they're so tight on labor, you know, you could ask a painter to go out and they're already up to their eyeballs and projects. And so then they're like, okay, I'll go check it out. And then a few, you know, weeks could even go by and then to get them to actually write out a proposal takes time. So that's one thing that I've really realized so over the years is so a lot of the money is made in the the execution on these so then that um that's something that I've made it a point you know personally on this to kind of all right don't lose track of the uh once we close what we need to do so we got the engineers through there really early cuz then we actually we applied for our permits you know 3 weeks after closing which I think probably the you know someone who if you're just doing things sequentially you probably you bring your you know from start to finish from getting the engineers through to pulling the permits it was like two months so there's two months that we turned into three weeks and then we already have proposals and bids we can sign right away for the exterior work which then probably or you know if you're just doing things in order that probably takes a month so now we're we're able to hit things quicker and then that uh things start to kind of compound where now let's say if you're a current resident and now the building's being painted like okay these new owners are really about to do they're we're doing something here so if they end up paying more in rent like the current residents like they're seeing like things are happening this building's improving um you know same thing or we have bids for redoing the pool uh we have all this the a landscaping plan not just like a quote on landscaping, but like a fully drawn out you know plan that you saw where it's like done by an actual landscape you know architect um too. And then one thing, I guess, is kind of close on, like I think, and this is like a good thing for everybody to keep in mind. I mean, even though we went through the property, like I said, in person, you know, me and Evan with our, you know, uh, contractor hats on, seeing what needed to be done in the unit. Still, when we initially budgeted this deal, we left an extra $4,000 a unit, uh, just in additional um, renovation costs budgeted thinking we're gonna go through this and we're gonna eventually find something that's like that's a problem. Like right now we're seeing no issues and that's pretty rare. Normally you'll go through and be like, oh geez, look at this. We have asbestos or we have a pan electrical that needs to be changed or just something and, you know, so far and it's true even through today, we haven't found anything um that is like that four thousand dollar or so issue. But so far so good and you know, we budgeted conservatively and then we were able to um haven't ran into anything yet, but even, you know, having done enough of these, I, you know, we'll see if it comes up, mm-hmm. but so far so good we're, we're coming in under budget. Um, but, you know, that's just so far with just getting the initial prices. Now we need to actually actually do it.
1: So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, you know, like you said earlier where, you know, obviously, you know, I'm on the acquisition side and I'm constantly looking for new deals and, you know, underwriting new deals, and finding uh identifying good ones to to pursue you know that's that's a really exciting thing that drives me but when it actually comes to closing the deal and um you know when you do start receiving bids for painting and landscaping and um doing the the unit interior renovations that's pretty you know exciting and um you know I, i'd say when the the closing <laughs> occurred um there wasn't you know uh champagne and you know a bunch of we didn't throw a parade or anything for ourselves we we got to work and you know the hard work start starts after the closing so you know what's really going to be rewarding is when we actually realize the value that we we see in the property um so we're excited about that
0: yeah so then that yeah that'll that'll come in time well yeah well great well yeah thanks for being on evan thanks for running us through the deal appreciate it yeah thank you great well, thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcast. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brineman
1: and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational
0: purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.